Welcome to Season 3 of the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Last year, host Jordan Guth got a crash course in the fundamentals of hi-fi from enthusiasts, journalists, manufacturers, and music industry professionals alike. Those lessons will continue, but this year Jordan will also get a history lesson from the legends who were there from the giddy-up and who made hi-fi what it is today. So with that out of the way, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we are joined with Paul Barton, the founder and chief designer of PSB Speakers, who is also a Canadian legend for his efforts in sound reproduction. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. So um, I, I kind of want to get everyone on the same playing field here to understand a little bit about how you got into audio and, and hi-fi originally. Um, my understanding is that it was your father who kind of inspired you to to start playing violin at a young age. And then that kind of led naturally to an interest in hi-fi. But do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of the, the early days of, of Paul Barton and how you got attracted to, to music and, and hi-fi? Sure. Um, let me go back to, you know, when I was very young and I mean, age, you know, six and where I grew up was in Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. And it had a very strong music program in the separate school board system. And there were two school board systems back in those days. One was the separate school board and one was the public school board. And the separate school board was a Catholic school board. So the Catholic and the Protestant school boards were two distinct different places. And in the Catholic school board, there was a very strong string education system in place where they would, nowadays they, they have something like the Suzuki, which is a, a, a style of training for violinists at very young ages. Well, back in the day, that didn't exist. So uh, Kitchener School Board, uh, Separate School Board, had a very strong music program. And within that program was a very strong string program. And just stepping back a little bit, how I got into that, was my father uh, is a musician by heart. He didn't he didn't do it professionally, although he did it quite a bit. He he was actually a steel salesman for industrial steel, and that's he that's what it, that's what his day job was. And then at, at at in the evenings, all he did was things that were dedicated to music. And he was a well trained uh, professional tenor. Uh, did a lot of opera, did a lot of operatic uh, things like Carousel and The Music Man and uh, Oklahoma, all of those Rogers and Hammerstein types of plays. He would always play the the, the major role in that. And so he, this was this was his main forte in life was to do the music. And as a young kid, you know, I hung out when he was at these rehearsals and and playing it uh, in different venues. Uh, with the uh, Kitchener Waterloo Operatic Society, which he, um, he he was one of the founders of it, and it still it still exists today. And uh, so I started in the string string program, and because my father was so dedicated to music, uh, after a very short time, uh, I got aligned with a private teacher. Her name was Dorothy Pierce, and she was a very well known uh, uh, violin teacher. And she lived in Kitchener-Waterloo. 
So I started taking uh, lessons with her. And uh, as time went on, I, you know, it became a pretty serious part of my life, even at, you know, age six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And when I was about nine, let's see, nine, yeah, nine years old, just turning nine, my father realized that over time, not too long from now, I would have to use a full-size violin because it, when you're really young like that, you can't, your arm's not long enough to reach the neck of the violin. Yeah. So I, you know, I started with a half-size violin. I moved to a three-quarter size violin, and that, now I was ready to go to a full-size violin. So my father, you know, started looking into it, and he found uh, he went to an auction where there was a violin to be auctioned, and he actually bought it, uh, and it was uh, it had its own case, which was a beautiful case, but it turned out the violin was kind of crappy. So, (laughs) so he made a decision at that time to actually make me a violin and he acquired all the, the the materials he needed. He spent about a year just making the tools to make the violin. And what I mean by that is you build the violin around a mold. So you have to build the mold in order for you to start building the violin. He also made some of the tools like the uh, scrapes and and uh, planes that he used to gouge out the inside body and the outside body of the top plate and the bottom plate of the violin, and so, and because he was in the steel business, he was able to get custom metal work done to make scrapes that he used to make make uh, the violin, and then he had to make all kinds of templates, and he made them out of galvanized uh, sheet metal to you know make the scroll and and all the details that are in the scroll he had templates that he made so it took him a year to make the templates and then it took him a year to actually make the violin he imported the wood from uh, italy uh which is you know kind of the the old forests of italy have really good pine and maple and there's a whole industry over there which isn't as mature here in north america on acquiring all the materials for violin making and so, I actually saw this violin in person. Uh, we met up uh, maybe a few weeks ago. Doug Schneider took me to the NRC facility where you were testing some stuff, and you had the violin with you to this day. So yeah. how that must be? How old would that violin be at this point? Well, uh, inside the violin, just before he finished it, he put a little label. You you look inside any violin, and if it's worth its salt, it has a little label inside. If you look through the f holes, yeah, that that, uh, you know, state who made the violin, when it was made, that sort of thing. And inside the violin, he made a label by hand, uh, even put some nice graphics around the edge of it. And he wrote in, made especially for Paul Barton by his father in Kitchener in 1963. That is incredible. So it's almost, uh, how, how old, 63? It's over 60. Yeah. It's 61 years old now the violin that is incredible and And you still use it to to this day yeah and it almost looks the same as it did the day he made it oh i I remember it was just beautiful it was pristine yeah yeah it's uh it's a beautiful instrument and i'll also add to it that he he not only made a violin but he he sought out the plans for a stradivarius violin which is which are public yeah. Uh, of a violin called the Messiah, which is in a museum somewhere under glass in England. Uh, 
And this violin was built as a benchmark showpiece that Stradivarius deemed he would never have anyone play it. So it's been rarely played. Interesting. And it's, it's sort of the, the company, Stradivarius was a company. It wasn't just one man. Yeah. And this, but this violin was the benchmark and this violin was actually made by Stradivarius. It wasn't just a Stradivarius company violin. It was actually made by Stradivarius as a showpiece. Hmm. And there have been many documented plans of the violin, mechanical plans. And uh, my dad was, was able to acquire, it was a small book that he got with all these fold out templates and things that he could use and trace with. Yeah. And he used that book to actually build the exact duplicate of the Stradivarius Messiah violin. That is absolutely incredible. So you, you would have been uh, around the like nine, 10 years old range, and you had I, this... I was 11 at that time. 11. I was, I was born in 51. Okay. And uh, that, was in, uh, that was in 63. No, my birthday's in August, so I was just before my birthday. So I was 11 years old, but... And I did the competition. I did a competition with that violin, and I can tell you a little story about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Once my father finished the violin, I was queued up to do a competition with the Kiwanis Music Festival. It, it was a sponsor for many musical festivals for young people in our area, and my father was still trying to finish the violin while I was getting ready to do this competition. So I was using my regular violin to learn the music, the repertoire that I wanted to play. And then it was getting really close to the wire. And I hadn't really played a lot or at all, for that matter, on a full-size violin. So my teacher, because my dad hadn't finished the violin and it was getting close to the competition date, my teacher lended me her violin. Okay. Well, her violin turned out to be a Guanarius violin. And, you know, today, in today's market, that violin is several million dollars. Whoa. And, well, it's, it's in the same era as the Stradivarius. Guanarius yeah. is another Italian violin maker. And um, so she lent me the violin. I was 11 years old. She lent me the violin. And I used to take the bus to get uh, lessons. So here I am, 11 years old, going home that night after she gave me the violin to do practicing on it uh, with a million-dollar violin. That's incredible. Taking it, taking it home on the bus. <laughs> I mean, at the time, I didn't know that. I didn't of know course. all of that, yeah. but that's what happened. So I was able to practice on her violin, and then when my dad finished mine, I had maybe a couple of weeks between the time my dad finished it and I had to do the competition. Yeah. So he... He, he got it ready and I started practicing on it. So I entered the competition uh, and it was an open class for violinists, which means the only thing you have to do to qualify is to be able to play a certain repertoire, a certain okay. level of repertoire. And I qualified for that and it was an open class. So it didn't matter what age you were. It was just a matter of whether you played competent in the right qualifying repertoire. And I won that competition with the highest mark ever awarded in the festival on a violin that had just been made by my father. That's so amazing. It, yeah. It was so your it was good luck of, charm. Yeah. And so it was kind of, it, you know, the local papers loved the whole story and it sort of launched me in confidence. It was a, 
a real turning point in my life, even though I was only 11 years old. At 11 years old, you're probably getting ready to go into high school or, or kind of already in high school. I'm, I'm trying to remember what age you no, went into in high school. I was in grade six at the time. Okay. So a, a couple of years later or a few years later, you get into high school and there's something in there that has you start building your own speakers. Yeah, I started building speakers. It wasn't, I actually started making speakers before I went into high school. Because my dad, as you can imagine, he had to build a little workshop in order to make the violin. Yeah. So the place, we actually moved to another location where he set up a workshop in the garage of our our new house, or our most recent house. You know, and he had a table saw and a, a radial arm saw and, you know, some power tools and a lot of hand tools, chisels and saws and all kinds of stuff. So I, I had a little workshop where I started to experiment. I mean, my dad and I built the very first loudspeakers together that I ever made. Oh, that's and, amazing. And so, um, yeah, so I got the hang of, you know, making a speaker box. And when I got into high school, I started dabbling in it wasn't until later in high school, but it was around grade 10 or 11. And it was a five-year course. So I was there right through to grade 13. And around 10 and 11, I started building speakers for, like I played, as I got older, I, oh, I'm jumping around here, but I, got, I played in an orchestra called the National Youth Orchestra of Canada. Okay. And I, I played in that orchestra for two summers. And what it is, is, uh, you know, the Canadian music community commissions professionals to help uh, train and build up a repertoire of an orchestra that has been chosen by the cream of the crop of students across Canada. So you have to audition for this and then they, they you get picked and then they create an orchestra and you study uh, the repertoire for a month uh, somewhere in Toronto. And then uh, for two weeks after that. You go on a tour, sometimes in Europe, sometimes across Canada, sometimes no in the United States. And in my case, the, the, the main tour we took was across Canada. In fact, we even took a train across Canada uh, with uh, sleepers and the whole bit. That's incredible. Yeah. And so um, where was I going with that? Um, so we were talking about um, that progression into building your, your own oh, right. speakers. Okay. So, yeah. So the very first pair of speakers I made, well, the very first pair I made were a pair or that we made, my dad and I, <clears throat> were speakers that we used in our hi-fi system on a Rotel integrated or receiver, stereo receiver. And then as I got interested in more sound, I actually started building speakers and also started building light organs. Do you know what a light organ is? I, I have no idea what a light organ is. Well, nowadays, I don't know if they call it that, but it's, it's just uh, three, color, uh, three colored light bulbs. Okay. And in, the, in today's technology, it would be LEDs, but it was three colored light bulbs that I put behind, you know, the kind of uh, plexiglass they put on fluorescent lights and ceilings? The just that that little square yeah, pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, so the, the woofer and tweeter were in the bottom part of the cabinet, and then the top third of the cabinet was a, a panel like that, and I had three uh, incandescent colored light bulbs behind the screen. 
And so I, I, I tied that into the music and I created, um, um, light organ, which is, it, it responds to, um, it responds to music. And I made the, the red light for bass notes. The, um, green light was middle notes and the blue light was high notes. That is amazing. And that was, uh, that was back. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm looking this up right now. These look really cool. And uh, I even made a sphere with uh, plexiglass tubes coming out of it that lit up, that had uh, light bulbs inside. And uh, so I I dabbled in that kind of stuff. And obviously I was getting really interested in the uh, active electronics and the passive acoustic electronics or mechanical. And I was uh, doing that at about age 17. And then shortly after that, I talked a guy into hiring me part-time at a hi-fi store near the University of Waterloo in, in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo. So I'd go there on the weekends and I, I recognized that, you know, a lot of the customers were students. And of course, when they get their uh, student loan at the beginning of the year, they would just go out and buy a hi-fi. They don't care about eating <laughs> or anything like that. They just as long as you have a good sound system, good sound system. And so I actually designed a couple of models. One, the one was more popular than the other was called the big black box. And it had a 12 inch woofer, a six inch closed back mid range driver and a small uh, one inch uh, diaphragm that coupled into a three inch uh, horn driven tweeter kind of, you don't see that type of stuff any, anymore, but it had to do with where I could get parts and that sort of thing. So I created, uh, in order to do this commercially at all, I had to be able to find a source that could I could buy as I needed them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I used to buy all my parts from the service department of a, um, a, a major electronics company in Kitchener at the time called Electrohome. Okay. And uh, they used to build TVs and hi-fi consoles in Kitchener at that time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was a big hub for hi-fi back in the day. So I, you know, I had local stuff where I could source all of these parts and bring things together and create. So I created a couple of models that I would actually just cut up the boards, drill the holes for the screws, uh, dr- cut the baffles out, um, build a crossover, include all the wires and I put it in a box as a kit and the student could actually take this box or two boxes and with a, with a single screwdriver and a soldering iron, they could build their loudspeaker in their dorm. Interesting. So it was kind of like the, the flat pack, the, the Ikea of speakers for its time. That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And so the, and the dealer that I did this work part time for, he he encouraged me to to do this sort of thing. And uh, actually, it's kind of an interesting story because at the time I was working at the store, uh, his name was Gary Welker, and he had just had a newborn around the time I was working there part time, like during that period of time. And his name was Andrew, and I can remember going. Um, over to Gary's house to listen to his big isophone, four 12 inch woofers in each cabinet. It was the cabinets were like six feet tall, about four feet wide, just huge speakers. And 
I can remember listening to Stefan Wolf's Ear Splitting Loudon Boomer on those speakers uh, and watching Andrew in the in the crib in the in the bedroom across the hall uh, jumping and, and enjoying the music. <laughs> and the reason I'm telling this story is that uh, the Andrew I'm talking about is Andrew Welker, who you know is one of the engineers at uh, Axiom Loudspeakers. No up way. In Dwight, up in Dwight, Ontario. Yeah. So the dealer that I worked for raised a son who became a speaker designer. <laughs> what are the chances? Well, I, I was blown away when I found out that Andrew eventually, he started his career at API in, in Toronto. Okay. And eventually moved up to uh, do engineering for Axiom and also does the engineering on the um, Brayston loudspeaker products yeah, yeah. That, you, that you've seen out there. So it's a really small world. Absolutely. Think, well, especially the, Canadian hi-fi, right? Like <laughs> the yeah. the Canadian hi-fi elements. It, and this is actually, this is a good kind of uh, place for me to, to kind of try and tie this together. So you're building speakers and you're in Kitchener-Waterloo. So how did the connection between you and Dr. Floyd Tool happen? Dr. Floyd Tool is in Ottawa. So that's about yeah. 400 kilometers away from where you are. Right. You're at your last year or potentially just getting out of high school. I understand that you met him, but like, how did that connection happen? Let me just preface it by saying what led up to that. And sure. Yeah, yeah. So as time went on and I started selling these kits, it became popular and I had trouble doing high school, my music, which was in the National Youth Orchestra, and building loudspeakers and working in the hi-fi store. So... Um, two high school buddies of mine, Klaus Borchardt and Walter Herman, showed some interest in what I was doing. And we kind of joined up forces where they would build the kits in Klaus's father's garage because his father was a carpenter. And I would spend my time, you know, doing the sa sales and, and focus on that area. And when high school ended and we all graduated, Klaus and Walter weren't sure what they were going to do going forward. And they decided to take a year off and make an effort at joining forces and creating a partnership called PSV Speakers. And we set up shop in a little town north of Kitchener-Waterloo called St. Jacob's. Yeah. And I, at, at the end of the, so in the summer of 72, we set up shop in St. Jacob's in a little place not very big place, or at least a big area. And I, at the same time, we so we set it up over the summer months. And in September, I was registered to start engineering at the University of Waterloo, okay. which is on the north side of Kitchener-Waterloo, which isn't far from St. Jacob's. So what I would do is I would go to school in the mornings from eight until five. And then at five, I would drive out to the shop and do whatever I needed to do out there. So I, I, I started university the same year or the same after the first summer of starting PSB. And I was able to do that because the University of Waterloo had a co-op program, which is, which means that you go to school for four months and then you take a, a work term for four months and you alternate sure, yeah. through your whole career. So uh, I went to school for four months, and as I said, I would go out to the shop. And then on my work terms, 
I worked for myself. And, and the university allowed me to do that, although it was something I had to get cleared by them because they never had a student that actually wanted to set up his own company and use that as a work term. But as I explained to them and showed them, they agreed to, to do that. The only caveat was at the end of each work term, the university would send the business sort of a, an evaluation uh, document that the owner of the business would fill out to see how how the <laughs> marks how the student <laughs> so that they would send it to the president of PSB, which was Paul Barton, for <laughs> for a student who was being evaluated. So I got really good high marks, and my my um, <laughs> that's awesome. My uh, guidance counselor and I used to get a real chuckle out of it because there were no there were no mechanisms in place to accommodate that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's that's how I kind of got the uh, up and running with my partners and that. And then at the same time, you know, I was a strong user of a lot of Philips drivers in the back of the day, the Philips tweeters and the Philips woofers, which were made in Belgium in in uh, in Europe. And so I used a lot of a lot of those. And um, they had a they had a driver platform which had a an accelerometer on the cone. So it's a little piezoelectric element that, that is underneath the dust cap of the woofer yeah. that when you connect to it, it actually gives you data output that's the acceleration of the cone. So I, I designed a, a, a proprietary circuit using this driver where I could um, connect the driver in a feedback loop. So we created a speaker called the Beta Two, okay. and you know, in, in in medical terms, Beta is the negative feedback of the nervous system, and Alpha is the forward feed of the brain system. And Beta is also something you use the word you use to describe the feedback loop of an electronic circuit. So you say the gain of the Beta is this much, sure. or the gain of the Alpha is this much. So I we called it the beta two and I implemented the, uh, uh, servo feedback system long before, uh, um, what's the big company used to make subwoofers Velodyne, who had servo feedback drivers and woofers back in the day. Well, PSB did that way before Velodyne did it. And we would run ads in a local magazine here in Canada. It was a McLean Hunter publication. Uh, called um, Audio Scene. Okay. And the two gentlemen who ran the magazine were Ernie Welling and Ian Masters. And I did an ad in the magazine, which we do from time to time. And this ad was introducing this new servo feedback beta 2 loudspeaker. And he read the ad and was really intrigued by a small Canadian company producing a fairly sophisticated product. So he called me up and invited me to visit with him. So I went to Toronto and, you know, visited him and got to know him a little bit. And at that time, he had been using the National Research Council to do measurements of loudspeakers that they were reviewing. Amazing. And so he approached NRC and, of course, he got directed to Floyd Toole, who was the he, the great person to do that because Floyd was also a hi-fi enthusiast, not just yeah. a, 
an acoustical or electrical engineer. He was a hi-fi enthusiast. So Ian and Floyd really hit it off well. And prior to me meeting Floyd, Ian had been also going to NRC when he sent the speakers up. And that was the beginnings of the blind screen listening that Floyd has highly documented. And it's a, it's become a, a very procedural thing when it comes to evaluating not only loudspeakers, but any kind of hi-fi equipment, which is a sort of a double blind screen, similar to what they use in the medical industry, where you the, not even the doctor knows what drug they're giving the patient. Of course, the patient doesn't know, only the drug company knows. Yeah. And so when we do these tests, someone sets up the test, but this person running the test doesn't know what's behind the screen. And neither do the listeners know what's behind the screen. So that was the beginnings when Floyd and Ian got together of them starting to experiment with listening evaluations. And then of course, because Floyd had the anechoic chamber there, it was a, it's, a, it's a separate building from the acoustics wing at the National Research Council in Ottawa. He was able to, you know, do measurements. And then, you know, when you have the data and you have listener responses that don't know what's behind the screen, let's try and correlate those two things and see if there's anything to do with it. So Ian says to me when I met him, he says, you got to meet Floyd. <laughs> so I kind of um, was, well, Ian set up a time where Floyd and I could meet. I drove up there one day um, in... It was 1974, two years after we started the company. And, uh, you know, actually the first meeting I had with Floyd was at his home. I drove up late in the day, and it's about a five-hour drive from Kitchener. And I met up with him, and at the time when I met him at first, uh, he was in his uh, kitchen sitting down with a a model of, of a home that he was planning to build with his architect was sitting there. So I, I kind of got a chance to see him at the beginnings of uh, the, the house he built in Manitech, which is a beautiful house, big uh, A-frame with a 32-foot cathedral ceiling in the living room. Oh, and no way. It was just gorgeous house. And so I, I, I met him the day he was sitting down just finalizing things on building this new home out in Manitech. And, uh, you know, Floyd and I hit it off very well, and uh, he loved kind of what I was trying to do it no other Canadian company had really surfaced that was serious about making high performance products uh, sound reproduction products and because he had already been sort of dabbling with this double blind screen with some of the samples that Ian Masters who were presenting here giving him to do the measurements it sort of launched all that thinking that went into how do we make the art of building loudspeakers better what what are the objectives and what is the most important things that a speaker must do and what are the lesser important things because anything in engineering is always a trade-off you got to capitalize on the things that you can improve and look at things that maybe you don't have to worry about too much that you know are not yeah exactly they're they're secondary um so i I can tell that this is running a little long and there's a lot of amazing information here that I don't really want to end up on the editing room floor. Let's take a break now and we'll split this up into two different episodes. And in the next episode, we'll kind of continue where we left off and go from there. 
What do you say? Sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone, and all the best.